Kids, I hope you have a, a great time in the back. If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to uh, Job. We're really going to jump all around the book of Job today. We'll start in Job 31 if you want to check that out. Uh, we certainly do hope that you'll join us for uh, the Lenten season that starts, hard to believe, uh, this Wednesday. Um, it feels like we just finished with the Christmas season, and yet here we are starting the Lenten season um, we have these different rhythms in the life of a church that are important. You know, we have rhythms for all sorts of things in our life, and the church has rhythms too, and uh, this Lenten season is a special one as we reflect on really the most important uh, events of redemptive history and welcome in the spring season as well, which Lent always uh, sort of gives birth to. Um, but we're not quite there yet, and if you've been with us, you'll know this winter we've been looking at... Uh, we've been taking a hard look at what it means to face hardship in life. And we've recognized that all of us face hardship in uh, big ways and little ways all the time. Um, if we're not experiencing hardship now, there could be one that we've just recovered from or one that's right around the corner. And we've questioned how do we as people of faith tackle the adversity uh, that life sends our way. And as part of our study, we've looked at two men who both suffered unspeakable hardship. We spent uh, four weeks looking at the story of Jonah, and this morning we're going to wrap up the story of Job. Uh, if you remember, Jonah uh, faced hardship of his own doing. Uh, he ran away from God. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And much of the hardship that he experienced was because of his rebellion against God and his own sin. Uh, but last week we looked at, we turned to the story of Job, another man who suffered uh, incredible and unspeakable hardship, but his hardship had nothing to do at all with his sin. It was part of this cosmic drama that we as the reader get to see, uh, but he never really learns of. Either way, both men had to learn how to trust God in the midst of their hardship, which has been sort of the guiding question for us. How do we learn to trust God? Uh, in the midst of the hardships of our lives. Now, the end of the book of Jonah, if you remember, a couple weeks ago, uh, was far from a happy ending. Uh, when the book ends, Jonah is stewing uh, in his own anger towards God and his stewing in his own self-righteousness. Uh, he wants to die once again. He refused to celebrate what God had done in the city of Nineveh. But Job's story, as we'll see, uh, finishes with a much happier ending. Uh, but before we get to the happy ending, we have to go through an intense dialogue that Job has with his friends and also with God. And, it, and specifically, that dialogue with God feels like this private conversation that, that Job is having with God that's very intimate and very raw, and yet we get a look into this private conversation. Interestingly, both books finish with a conversation with God. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Jonah remains in his obstinate anger even after the conversation, but Job radically changes as a result of his encounter with God. And so the question is, will we allow our hardships uh, to make us bitter, obstinate people or will we allow our hardships to shape us more and more into God's image? And so we're going to jump around a bit as we look at our text this morning, and I'll try to introduce a little each section for us so we know exactly what's going on. 
So I want to start with Job 31. I'm just going to read verses 2 to 8. And this is Job's prayer before God. And he says this, What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows from me be rooted out. Now we're going to skip ahead to chapter 40, verses 1 to 9. And in 41 to 9, we get God's answer to Job. And we'll set this up a little, in a little bit. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Now skipping ahead to verse, uh, or chapter 42, verses 10 through 17, really the last verses of the book. And the Lord rest- restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, and the name of his second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapach. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. This is God's Word. Lord, we're so thankful for uh, just the power of your Word, and we've looked at this Old Testament story, and while Job's story is a bit unique, uh, there are lots of parallels with our own lives and the, the troubles that we face day in and day out. So as we look at this piece of wisdom literature, Lord, help, it, help us to uh, be more wise, be more conformed to your image, to uh, have faith in the midst of the troubles and the hardship that life sends our way. 
Thank you that our trouble and hardship is not the final word of our story, just like it wasn't for Job's. And so speak to us now through his story. Speak to us now through your word that we may know you better. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So Job's um, book is counted in the Old Testament as a wisdom literature book. And so along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, um, it's considered a, a book of wisdom literature. And so it draws us to speculation. It draws us to self-reflection. It wants us to, to stake, take stock of our own level of wisdom and faith. And so as we look at Job's story, we're supposed to reflect on our own story and ask questions about our own lives. And as we saw last week, we're dividing Job's story into four chapters. Uh, Last week, we looked at his character and we looked at his losses. Uh, This morning, what we want to look at is his search, which takes over the large portion of the book. And lastly, his discovery. And these final two chapters help us think about what it means to trust God in hardship. So if you're with us last, last week, we saw that Job was a man of big wealth. He had a very big family, and he had a very big faith. And his wealth and his family, we learn at the very beginning of the book, are taken away from him in a blink of an eye. And where we left Job last week was he was sitting outside of the city. Um, he was diseased, positioning himself on the city's dump heap. Uh, He's surrounded by his friends who were there probably to console him, but they were also there for the spectacle of the sight as well. What we learned is that it's all part of a cosmic drama. We understand it as the reader, but Job never really understands why all of this is happening. He has no answers. And so could his faith handle this hardship and the extreme loss and the fact that it all felt to him very senseless. All of this loss had to feel meaningless because he had no answers. And so last week I put the question before you. I asked you to to take a moment to think about your own lives and what you have right now, to think about the friends that are there, uh, that are present in your life and faithful and offer comfort and peace to you, to think about your family, your parents, your children, your grandchildren, to think about your home and your wealth, the cars, the bank accounts, to think about your wealth, and then to imagine what it would be like if God took it all away in the blink of an eye. In a blink of an eye, all of it is gone, and you have no answers as to why all of this has happened to you. Would you still be able to love and trust God through it all? Would you still be able to love and trust God with no answers? Now, Job obviously wants answers, and that's what leads us to the bulk of this book and his search that we call it. Jonah, who we looked at before, faced all sorts of hardship, but he was never presented with the question of why. He knew exactly why he was facing all of this hardship. It was because of his sin. But then when you come to Job, that's not the case at all. And so he comes before God and he wants answers. 
He wants a correspondence, one-to-one correspondence. Why has this happened to me? What is the reason and the meaning behind it all? Now, everybody's willing to give him answers. His wife comes to him and says it's because of his own sin and that he should curse God and die. Uh, He, of course, calls her a fool and then dismisses her. Uh, His friends come to him as well, and his friends are uh, the theologians. They're theologically astute folks. They're they're well-meaning in providing answers to Job because of his sin, but of course we know they're dead wrong at the end of the day. And the bulk of this book is their dialogue between Job and his friends trying to find out an answer to why Job is suffering. At the end, it isn't helpful for Job at all. You know, you, you have mixed feelings about these friends. Yes, they're, they're there with him in his pain. You know, they sat with him in silence for, for seven days. They want to offer answers, and their answers sort of come off really preachy. These might be the fix-it type of friends that are out there that just want to hear themselves speak. But at the end of the day, it's not helpful for Job at all. And so none of it helps him as he searches for answers. In chapter 3, he opens, you start to hear his own self-reflection. And and in chapter 3, he curses the day that he was born. Now, yes, Job is a man of of big faith, as we've seen. uh, But that doesn't make him a stoic. That doesn't mean he doesn't feel anything. He feels the pain of his loss. And he's left a lot like Jonah, wishing for his own end. He says at one point, He wishes for the end of his own life like a person wishes to find buried treasure. He says in chapter 3, I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. In chapter 6, he says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Job wants it all to end. He sounds like Jonah at the very end of the book of Jonah. Now, Job's depression continues. And as you read throughout the book, his, his depression continues as he writes chapter after chapter of poetry. And he approaches God initially simply wanting answers. Why has all this happened to me? But then he switches to complaining before God about all the wrong that has come upon him. So his depression sort of moves on to prosecution. You almost feel like you enter into a courtroom and the prosecutor is angry at God for all of this. God, how could you do this to me? I've been righteous and I've been blameless. How could you punish me? in all of these different ways. And so, yes, he's bringing his depression before God, but he's bringing his complaint before God. He's bringing his anger before God. He says in chapter 7, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And as you read... And and as as Job is just laying all this out before God, we as the reader are sort of like, can we say these things to God? Um, Is is it okay for us to pray this way before the Almighty God? You know, I've thought about that this week, and I think there's a real careful balance to the way we lay out our lives before God, specifically through 
our prayers. You know, the Bible talks, especially in the wisdom literature, about the fear of the Lord as being the key to wisdom. You want to be wise, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the key to wisdom. And what we read about when we learn about the fear of the Lord is that it's, it's a certain reverence and respect that we have before God and uh, a treasuring of our relationship with him. It's, it's a recognition that, that the God whom we pray to is powerful and he is transcendent. And as we enter into God's presence through prayer, we enter into the presence of the almighty God who is transcendent and powerful far beyond what we can imagine. But what we also recognize in our prayers is that God is also intimately involved in our lives. I love the image of the fact that God knows the number of hairs that are on our head. Some of us have more than others, but God knows the number of hairs on our head. And if he knows that intimately, he also knows the intimate thoughts that run through our minds day in and day out better than anybody else. And so there's a certain honesty that should also characterize our prayers. It's a perfectly honest to come to God and say, God, I'm a mess, and I'm just going to honestly lay out everything before you that I'm feeling. Here are my frustrations. Here is my anger. Here is my complaint. And so that's what Job does here. He lays it all out before God, trusting in both God's transcendence and also God's tenderness in his own life. And yet what's so remarkable about Job is that even through all of these chapters, even in the midst of this search, even in the midst of his honesty, you see moments where his hope is refreshed in his relationship with God. He says in chapter 12, verse 15, though he slay me, there's honesty for you, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even in his search, even in his pain, he holds on tightly to God. He says in chapter 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So even in his frustration, even his anger, his bitterness, his anguish, he refused to let go of his hope in God. Remember the story of Jacob when he wrestled with God uh, in the middle of the night in the dream, and, and he's credited with his faith. Why? Because in that wrestling match, he refused to let go of God. And so that's what you see in Job. He refused to let go of God. And what's remarkable in all of this search, and chapter after chapter of this deep emotional poetry, God remains silent. God doesn't respond to Job. It's sort of like he's letting him get it all out. And then all of a sudden, in, in chapter 38, uh, God chooses to start speaking. And in the process, Job, to put it mildly, is overwhelmed. But in his feeling overwhelmed, he discovers something about God. He discovers a deeper understanding of God's character, both his transcendence and his tenderness, both his greatness and his intimacy. In the latter half of the book, twice the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind, it says. Twice he says to Job, dress for action like a man. If those aren't words to make you gulp. 
I don't know what words are. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And what flows out of these chapters are some of the most beautiful chapters in the Old Testament, though we can only imagine how Job must have felt on the receiving end of this language from God. God speaks and he outlines the beauty and the majesty of the created world that is around us. He highlights the fact that he governs and preserves this natural world that is around us. And now what happens is God himself seems to take the role of the prosecutor. He he questions Job about his skill to dictate the natural world that is around him. He says in verse 38 to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. You even see some sarcasm on God's part as he questions Job. Now, needless to say, Job is blown away by it all. In chapter 40, he promises God silence. He says, I'm I'm not going to speak anymore. He even says, "I, I cover my mouth now. But yet God continues saying once again to dress for action. And he continues his closing argument, verse 41, who can draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Needless to say, Job walks away overwhelmed and he walks away recognizing just how small he is in comparison to God's might and his power. You see, Job is left awestruck. You know, in our, in our culture, we throw that word um, awesome around all the time, right? How was your Starbucks? Well, it was awesome. Really? Was it awe-inspiring? Did it fill you with awe? Because that's really what that word means. Uh, but this is the trueness of that word awesome or awestruck. Job is overcome by God's greatness, and he walks away humbled as a result. You see, friends, that's what pain often does to us. It humbles us. It it reminds us that that we are not as in control of our lives as we often imagine, and frankly, we don't like to uh, accept that about our own lives. We like to, to think that we are in control, but what we really need is to be reminded of the fact that God who is good, is the one who is in control of all things. Even the mystery of our pain at times humbles us because we don't often have the answers. We don't know the why. We don't often know the when or the what or how long we're going to have to persist in this hardship. And God often isn't forthright with those answers. He doesn't give us the reasons and the why all of the time, but here's what he always does. He always gives us himself. He always gives us a reminder of his presence in our lives. God's saying here to Job, you don't have all the answers. And guess what? I'm not going to give you all the answers as to why you're facing this hardship. But here's what you do have. You have me. I give you myself. I give you a greater and fuller sense of my power, a greater and fuller sense of my presence in your life. 
I've told this uh, story before, but years ago, I think it's probably been probably eight or nine years ago, a bunch of us here at City Church um, went to a, uh, a talk down given at Hopkins University um, by Ravi Zacharias. And uh, Ravi Zacharias, before he's, he's had some difficulty towards the end here, um, but before Ravi Zacharias um, was a, a great speaker going around, a great apologist, and he came and gave a, an hour and a half talk at uh, Hopkins, and it was sort of majestic theologically and apologetically. It was about the, the topic of um, why there's evil in the world and why there's suffering, and I'll never forget, I've forgotten most of the talk, but I'll never forget at the very end, there was an opportunity for question and answers. And um, at, in the question and answer period, we, I watched a, an older woman sort of uh, limp up to the microphone at the front. And this is what she said, I'll never forget it. She said, two years ago, I prayed that I would be closer to God. And she said, these have been the worst two years of my life when it comes to suffering. In fact, today I learned that I am now diagnosed with a debilitating illness. And she said, can you tell me why that happened? Can you tell me why I asked to be closer to God and I've done nothing but suffer for the past two years? Now I expected the speaker to launch into a very theologically astute answer to that question, a la Job's friends in the story. But that's not what happens at all. The speaker looked at her honestly and tenderly and said, I don't know why all this has happened to you, but I know that we have a God who is with those who suffer. And I know that we have a God who even weeps over our suffering. And he began to tell the story of Jesus approaching the tomb of Lazarus. And you know the story. Um, Lazarus was one of Jesus's dear friends, and he died before Jesus had an opportunity to visit him. And Jesus approaches the grave, knowing full well that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he does so, what does Jesus do? He weeps before the tomb of his friend. I've often wondered, why does he weep, knowing that he's about to raise him from the dead and heal Lazarus? Well, he wept because he intensely felt like what suffering is all about. You see, friends, God doesn't always give us answers in our suffering, but he does remind us of his presence, that he is a God who is well acquainted with our grief and with our pain and who is radically with us in the midst of it. Doesn't mean that he takes the pain away. Even after Job's restoration at the end, it still is very careful to say he felt the pain of his loss. But what he did know is that God's presence was with him. God's transcendence was on display and his intimate care was with him every step of the way. Now in the end, this book has a happy ending, right? We read all the wealth that was restored to him. Sure, Job felt the pain of loss. It was still there, but his wealth is restored. His family is restored, and all of it is even multiplied at the very end. And so Job, in many ways, is brought back to life. Last week, we saw that Job was an innocent sufferer. 
We left him sitting outside of the city, bloodied and positioned on a dump heap. Everything had been stripped away. But what we talked about was Job was not the only innocent sufferer that we see in the scriptures. Because we turn to the gospels, we turn to the Lenten season that we're about to begin, and we see Jesus also who was taken outside of the city, one who was stripped and bloodied, one who had a crowd gathered around him, gawking at him, there for the spectacle, mocking him. He was the ultimate innocent sufferer, one who suffered so that you and I could be redeemed. But just as Job was raised back to life, so was our Savior, Jesus Christ. On the third day, he rose from the dead, gaining victory over sin and death. And friends, this is such good news. Why? Because because Jesus rose from the dead, our pain and suffering will never be the end of our story. Our sin will never have the final word. And we can even find joy in this life knowing that one day our hardships will be gone for all of eternity as our resurrected Savior will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I don't know about you, but that is good news. It is hope for those of us who suffer. Let's pray.